0: This is Dead Air, the unofficial Grateful Dead radio program for the official releases, which airs on 80 radio stations around the globe, from Australia to Alaska. Taking a look at where the Grateful Dead has roamed around, 710 Ashbury. The Grateful Dead lived there for a while, and just within walking distance was a neighbor, but also a very close friend. Holly George Warren here, and my book is Janice, Her Life and Music. I grew up, I was way too young to have seen her live, sadly, but even in my small town in North Carolina, I was a big fan, and one of the first albums I ever got was Pearl in 1971. Loved it. But once I was living in New York, and I was working at Rolling Stone and doing projects with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I ended up, um, fortunately, getting to meet people like Sam Andrew, who was her guitar player, and Big Brother, and Chet Helms. The guy who's really got her to San Francisco, he started the Avalon Ballroom and managed Big Brother and the Holding Company. And just listening to some of their stories, I realized that there was this whole other side of Janice that I did not realize. She was very good at presenting this persona, this image that she concocted of herself as this kind of blues mama who just kind of went out on stage and just let it all out she just was it's all about feel and you know i bought it like most people but from talking to them and then definitely in the early like around 2013 when i got to hear um some tapes that had been locked away in the vault at columbia when they got those out and i was listening to janice on tape Talking to her producer Paul Rothschild in the studio during the making of Pearl, and I'm like, Oh my god, this woman, she's like producing this record. She was coming up with guitar parts and you know, arrangements and tempo ideas and things like that. I'll overdub it, I'll overdub it if you like. <laughs> really, or you could have Vince stand up and sigh right you know, and on this side of the mic. Uh, are you gonna ever say anything like take anything so we can find these if we might want them? We can find everything. Okay, let's do it again. And it kind of turned my head around to see that at a time when women really did not have much power or control in the studio, she did. So I was very intrigued to figure out, like, well, how did she get there? You know, obviously you can't go from just being this musician who's just kind of singing and feeling it all to suddenly in the studio and having that much power. Even as far back as say like 1966 when Big Brother were doing this residency in Chicago and they got this deal, their first record deal with mainstream records and they're recording some tracks there. Here's Janis Joplin, totally glomming on the whole studio experience and writing home to her parents, detailing, you know, what double tracking vocals is like and explaining it and everything. And then as the more letters I read, I realized that she was this techie person who she was like the first one in the studio the last to leave. I mean really worked hard on those records and again she was writing home explaining what the mixing process is like so I just was shocked to find out that um, there was more kind of a deep um, scholarly techie head to her than I had any idea of. She created this image that she um, promoted with all these interviews that she did. So, for example, um, she, one writer asked her, like, so do you write a lot of songs? And she's like, oh, I don't write songs. I just make them up, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, she she started writing songs back in, like, 1962 in Austin, Texas. She really tried to hide that kind of side of her, this uh, very hardworking technical musician side. She tried to make it look easy. She tried to make it look like she was just kind of letting it all out. Where as in reality, I mean, as a teenager, she began exploring and studying um, blues recordings to learn how to sing in a very different way than what came naturally to her. And so all that was a big surprise to me. I was really fortunate. I was able to interface with the family and they trusted me with Janice's letters, her scrapbooks, her personal effects that were locked up in this vault in Los Angeles. And so from digging into that and particularly reading her letters, she was just this phenomenal letter writer. I'm just telling you, I mean, her letters are amazing. I am not exaggerating. She was so articulate. She was funny. She was very self-analytical when she wrote letters. And the good thing is I wrote, I got to read letters that she wrote, not just to her parents, to her family, but um, to her friends and to this horrific cad boyfriend that she had in 1965, who claimed he wanted to marry her. And he was a total con artist, just awful. But the the good news is she wrote him something like seventy or eighty letters over about three or four months. Those are just mind boggling because she you know was back living in Texas. She'd been out in San Francisco trying to make it as a singer, doing her Bessie Smith style blues. She had picked up this nasty methamphetamine addiction and had gone back home to uh, just kind of um, get clean and you know recalibrate. She went back to college. She was really reassessing her life. And, you know, again, she was young. You know, she was only like 22 years old, but she was looking back at things she had done, and she was very introspective. She was very much like taking stock of where she had been where she wanted to go. But then you see her evolve. She's trying to stay away from music because she was worried that it was going to kill her because she couldn't resist all the crazy temptations of life as a musician. But she couldn't stop herself. She starts writing about, you know, working on guitar and trying to be a good guitar player, about, you know, working on songs, her vocals, recording. You know, there's somewhere, maybe somebody even has these recordings that she did in late 1965 in a little, you know, friend studio in Beaumont. She couldn't stop that drive to make music. Just the body of her letter writing just painted such a deep picture of her that I literally felt like I knew her from those letters. When they were recording Cheap Thrills, I interviewed different engineers. And interestingly, they tried to make it seem like the whole album was pretty much live, which was actually a bold face, big old lie. (laughs) The original idea for Cheap Thrills was for it to be recorded live. And they actually went up to, in early 1968, Big Brother went up to Detroit to the fabulous Grande Ballroom and um, had a couple of nights there. And MC5 was the opening act, who were, you know, the hometown killer rock band in Detroit. And basically, sadly, even though Janice sang her butt off, you know, the guys, it wasn't their greatest moments, you know, recording, and I mean, The way that I think today we look back and we like, I mean, personally, I love that kind of sloppy punk, kind of, you know, garagey vibe. I love that. But, you know, when you think about the fact that they had just signed to Columbia Records, which was really a very mainstream label then, they didn't have any really cool, you know, of course they had Dylan, but they didn't have any kind of cool, loose kind of bands. You know, it was much more. Uh, organized let's say and I think they got really kind of um, their confidence was very shaken up because after they did these live recordings there for the record they were pretty much raked over the coals by Albert Grossman, who was their manager. He thought they sucked and that, you know, they could have, they, they were, you know, he starts like saying, oh, well, we didn't need a different guitar player and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he was just ripping them to shreds. So it really undermined their confidence, you know. And then the other problem was he pretty much was the guy who picked John Simon to be their producer. Now, John Simon was a great producer. You know, he produced Leonard Cohen. And, of course, famously, he produced these um, demos for the band, which got them their record deal. But he was a real perfectionist still, you know, very much kind of the kind of guy that, you know, was very into technique over feel. And Big Brother and The Holding Company, they were all about feel. They go into the studio. They try to make it have this vibe as if it was going to be live and that um, they would all be in the same room rather than, you know, putting the drummer back behind in in the plexiglass room, you know, and the the singer separated out. They tried to kind of do that, but it really wasn't working out at all. I mean, basically what they ended up doing was – They, I think they did maybe one song live um, in San Francisco at the Fillmore, but the rest of the tracks on that record pretty much, believe it or not, were all pieced together from lots of different takes, etc., pieced together. The Turtle Blues track, which has this crazy kind of live feel, that was done in the studio, but they recorded some kind of ambient sound at um, Barney's Beanery with like smashing glasses and laughing and that was Bobby Newworth and some of that gang hanging out and then they even added to that even more when, we went, when they went back to the studio so they kind of tricked people into thinking it was a live album but it was actually except for that one track, I think it was Ball and Chain um, everything else was kind of painstakingly put together in the studio This weekend is the biggest in pop music history. It's the Monterey International Pop Festival. When Monterey Pop came together, basically Lou Adler and John Phillips, the Mamas and the Papas, were seen as these Hollywood kind of sharpies. So none of the San Francisco bands trusted these guys. They thought they were out to just kind of try to use their cool vibe from San Francisco to make a buck. And basically, no one got paid for playing at Monterey Pop. It was supposedly a benefit, right? So here on top of that, they say, oh, and we're filming it for a, it was going to be a TV show for ABC, Originally, and so none of the San Francisco bands wanted to be give away their music for free to these L.A. dudes who were going to make money off of them, selling it to ABC. So the Grateful Dead would be—they refused to be filmed and other San Francisco artists. Uh, Jefferson Airplane, you know, they were already signed to a deal, and they were pretty commercial, so yes, they agreed. But that's what happened. Because they would not sign the contract, their first set on Saturday afternoon, and nobody had heard of Janice. Big Brother was barely heard of outside of the Bay Area. And they were like an early afternoon Saturday, you know, pretty like Slim Pickens kind of gig. But they go out there, Janice is killer. The band, they everybody's just blown away. And that famous shot of Mama Cass's face, she's purely gobsmacked, you know, watching. Well, that was pretty much the only thing uh, D.A. Pinnebaker, the great documentary filmmaker who was shooting it, was able to film. He was so crazy about Janice that he went to. Lou Adler and John Phillips, and said, look, I'm not doing this movie unless we get this Janis Joplin in my movie. If you've got to break somebody's arm, do what you got to do, but we got to get her. So basically what happened was they did indeed make a deal where, okay, we'll let you play again tomorrow, Sunday evening, which was, of course, the amazing night that Hendrix and everybody played. If you'll play, if you'll sign and allow yourself to be filmed, you can do another set, which nobody else got and so it was a big 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 fight because julius carpin their manager stuck to the, his guns and said no don't do it don't do it so janice she wanted she wanted to be famous she wanted to make it and the guys did too so she's the one that really put up a big fight and said we are doing this set we're going to be filmed and just get over it and if we have to fire julius so be it so that's pretty much what happened <music> I actually ran into that manager, Julius Carpen, who's now in his mid eighties, still sharp as attack. We were chatting and he's like, Oh, Janice really hated me. She never said anything nice about me because she was so mad at me. And there's this footage of her being interviewed in Europe in '69, um, when she was touring Europe and the guy says, Oh, so you have a new manager now, right? You know, what's up with that? And she goes, Yeah, he's better. <laughs> How did, you meet, how did you meet Albert Grossman? Uh, when we played the uh, the Monterey Pop Festival, you know we had, an, another, we had another an intermittent intermittent manager then who was no good at all. But um, I just met Albert at the Monterey thing because it was a film being made and a lot of problems, both backstage problems, and I met him. Trying to solve some of them. And so Julius had seen that footage and was kind of downhearted about it. And I said, well, Julius, she actually wrote a letter to her parents that I quote in my book where she is raving about you. And she's talking about, we've got a new manager now. He's so fine. And on and on and on about how great he was. And he's like, I mean, literally, you know, the guy's like 83, 84 years old, his face lit up. He goes, really? She said that about me? Oh my God, I'd love to read that. Cause you know, he hadn't seen the book yet. And I'm like, I will send you a copy of that letter and the book so you can see it. In fact, that's on my list of things to do is to send that to him so he can see that Janice was thrilled with him when he became manager. What I tried to do with this book was really trace Janis Joplin's musical journey from her childhood and her years as a teenager growing up in Port Arthur, Texas in the 1950s, and how she was able to become this basically a blues scholar through tracking down 78s of Leadbelly Belly and Bessie Smith, etc., she was born with a great voice, but she started kind of using her voice in a different way when she discovered this kind of music, and it led her on this path that took her to San Francisco when she was 20 years old, um, and trying to sing in coffee houses for about Two and a half, three years until eventually she ended up joining Big Brother and the Holding Company when she, in 1966, when she moved out to San Francisco again. I tried to focus on the music and I just, couldn't believe all these amazing um, musical adventures that Janice had had that took her on this path that I didn't know about, that weren't in the other previous books. So that was very gratifying to be able to uh, get this information out there to people so that they can see. She was a driven musician that worked for years. She was obsessed with music.